and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 19, an interview with Jeremy Miles. Welcome back everyone to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching. We are out on the road for a very special episode with a very special guest. Um, We would like to give a warm podcast welcome to Jeremy Miles, um, our Minister for Education and Welsh Language. Croesaw, Jeremy, how are you? Diolch Emma. I'm very pleased to be here. Um, Thank you for the opportunity to have a chat with you two. Wonderful. And it's timely actually because, um, am I right in saying that you're almost a year into your tenure? Is it the 8th of May? I think that's right. There was a little bit of a delay, as there always is, informing the new government. So probably it's a little week, couple of weeks uh, beyond that, but it's coming up to a year, certainly. And um, I'm sure I'm not the only person participating or listening to this podcast who will feel that the last year has flown so uh, absolutely well we're really glad to have you and there's obviously a lot um, to discuss I'm going to hand over to Tom who's got our first question yeah I suppose normally we we might say to you you know minister what what are the big things in your in-tray at the moment you know what are the big priorities (laughs) for education but we probably would be uh, insulting the intelligence for you and the listeners if we did that so let's just ask the question curriculum for Wales it's coming in yeah very very shortly you know what is it just a few months away so I suppose we have to ask the elephant in the room question which is that from your position up on the pinnacle do you think the schools are on schedule to get going on the new curriculum for Wales this September yes so obviously all all our primaries and and around half of our secondaries will start to implement from this September Um, and I, I suspect actually that for the half of secondaries who are not they will definitely be um, experimenting with curriculum approaches uh, from September onwards in any case. So there's been a lot of enthusiasm, I think, for reforms to the curriculum. And I think we've been on this journey for quite some time, haven't we? So I feel that we're in a good place. Clearly, uh, you know, we'll probably come on and talk about the effects of COVID at some point during our conversation, I think. But, you know, the effects of the last two years have obviously been uh, significant. But what I, you know, I think the key thing is the key message I want to send to our um, teaching professionals is that September 2022 is not the end of the journey. You know, it's the next staging post. It's the beginning of the implementation process. I did a, a lecture back in February where I was really, I was hoping, and I think, uh, I feel I was, very open with people saying, I will, I'm very aware that there'll be teachers feeling different levels of kind of confidence and readiness, uh, which is inevitable and unsurprising, um, and that we're on this journey together. And it's, you know, it's absolutely, if you're one of those teachers who feels, oh gosh, you know, I wish I'd had more of an opportunity to do X, Y, Z. Perfectly understandable in the circumstances. But, you know, you're not on that journey alone. Um, And there's a lot of um, professional learning. There's some additional uh, resources that came out at the same time as I did that lecture, which, you know, was sort of designed to allow professionals to have those conversations with their heads, with their clusters. Just on the clusters, I think it's just so important. I just want to take this opportunity, if I may. You know, I think it's really important for all schools to make sure that the clusters that they're working in are working effectively in terms of curriculum preparation. And if, you know, that's a really important part of the period ahead. But I think, I guess my key message really is that this is a 
process of culture change in our schools, really, as much as it is delivering a new kind of curriculum. And I think we should embrace it in that in that way, really. And school leaders right across Wales, you know, there's a real opportunity, I think, to bring your own vision to how this will work in your schools. And also, not least given the audience, part of the audience for this podcast, I said in a recent discussion with some uh, ITE students that I thought, felt that, you know, early stage, newly qualified uh, teachers had a, a leadership role, actually, in terms of how the curriculum is uh, rolled out, not least because of the particular training they will have had. Uh, if you talk to organisational theorists they have a thing called leading beyond authority actually that's generally for people who are in formal leadership positions but this is a version of that really you know we've all got a contribution to make about how the new values of the curriculum are embedded in schools and i think if you've come through a system which has specifically trained you for that you've got both a particular opportunity and if i may say a particular responsibility as well to try and make sure that those sets of values are embedded in the school I think as well, you know, the other two, two things I was talking about when I gave the lecture a few weeks ago was that this is a curriculum for Wales. So, you know, there needs to be a lo you know, local curricula in schools, but also reflecting a set of national priorities. So, the, you know, the focus on literacy, on numeracy, uh, on digital competent competences are really important. And also it's a curriculum for all our young people. So it needs to be inclusive, but it also needs to be stretching. You know, so we, we, this isn't about a minimalist curriculum, it's about taking each individual learner on the best version of their journey. You know, the most stretching, the most challenging, the most supported, obviously, version of their journey. And, and I think people get that, and I think that's a very exciting part of the new curriculum. Mm, thank you. And you mentioned the need for a real culture change, actually, and for schools to sort of rise to that challenge. And that is a, that's a slow, long process to change culture. Yeah. Um, it takes time, yeah. uh, it takes effort. And as you said, it takes, you know, collegiality, working in clusters, working together. And of course, in the middle of all of this, we've had an absolutely life-changing global event, as, as you mentioned, the COVID-19 pandemic, which has, we know from research that we've been involved in, really sort of inhibited that or momentum maybe and has, has caused challenges for teachers that have meant that they've had to really focus on other things, um, focus on core business. And so with all of that in mind, do you feel that the COVID-19 pandemic has slowed down reform, has speeded it up in some areas or has changed it in some way? Well, I mean, it's definitely changed it. And I think the honest answer to your first question is I think some things it's probably slowed down and think some things it's, it's you know, turbocharged in a way. So, you know, from a, again, from a practitioner point of view, there will be, you know, a range of anxieties around loss of that formal preparation time, aren't there? You know, clearly um, we've lost teaching time, but we've also lost time for people to reflect on their approach, their practice all those things which are you know, really important to delivering uh, the curriculum and to, and to practice more broadly. And I think that does cause, you know, probably a bit of loss of confidence in some, doesn't it? Understandably. But I, just, I think it's really important to set alongside that the actual experience that schools have been through and that teachers and teaching assistants have been through. And I think it is an extraordinary achievement 
that educational professionals have been able to continue to make sure that young people have been learning over the course of the last two years. And it has involved an incredible level of ingenuity, adaptability, creativity, uh, resourcefulness in almost no time. You know, delivering that with against, you know, an incredibly punishing set of real-time challenges has been an experience like no other. And I think we have to regard that as being an indicator of the capacity of the system to respond in those difficult circumstances, but also to adapt more broadly, and the capacity of individual practitioners. And I, I hope that teachers will draw confidence from that. I know it's, it's, you know, it's easy for a minister to say that, isn't it, across a table in a government building. But I do think it's just important for everyone to take stock and think, I have accomplished an extraordinary thing in the last two years. And so I know that I've got the capacity, you know, to take forward the kind of changes that we're all looking at. So I think on a kind of personal practitioner level, that's a very important, I hope, thing for people to reflect on. I mean, but more broadly, on a kind of system-wide basis, I suppose, you know, the focus on learner well-being, the focus on adaptability, the digital learning that we've made, all of those things are also uh, big steps forward. You know, the kind of more fluid way in which teaching has happened more broadly. Mm-hmm. I think there's things to learn from that. And it's really hard, isn't it, to try and find the positive from such a terrible experience. But it's really important that we try to. And I think there are some, exa- you know, there are definitely things which we can point to as, uh, as, as being steps forward. From a government point of view, obviously, we've also tried to create a little bit more space in a very crowded school environment, you know, to react, if you like, to what, to the pressures of COVID. So some of that has been around suspending performance measures and, you know, the inspections and so on. Some of it is about about providing flexibility to the secondaries to make their own judgments about when to start. So I hope that's been helpful. I don't for a second underestimate the challenge of the last two years, but I also think there have been, you know, indications in there that we should be proud of as a system, actually, and, and should give us confidence. And of course, in a way we are left with competing priorities for classroom practitioners now because you're right they they reacted admirably did incredibly well under pressure but we've heard a lot of theorists and people in the field talk about a period of recovery learning loss and so teachers are recovering trying to help make up for that learning loss whilst also in the current climate of subsidiarity now being curriculum designers so is there a, a sort of extra layer um, of complexity for teachers now? And what's the plan now as we come into the, the crunch point for Curriculum for Wales to acknowledge that teachers and learners are both recovering from something significant and being asked to meet the demands of Curriculum for Wales? Well, I, you know, I, I, I would be keen you know, to reflect the point that you just made, I, I have been very clear from the very start um, about the scale of challenge which practitioners are, uh, are grappling with and that, you know, at various points in the last two years that has been, pers- you know, at a personal cost to many people, isn't it? Um, managing their own well-being as well as their obligations as professionals. So so there's no question about that. Actually, that is really very much coloured, um, the approach which we've taken in Wales to supporting uh, learners and teachers and teaching assistants in their in their work which I think has been very different if I may say from the approach taken um in particular perhaps in England where there's been I think you know that the focus of the kind of catching up that sort of relentlessness I I think is my own view is that isn't the right approach the right approach is to focus on the kind of 
what, you know, in my own mind, I call them kind of gateway skills, really, uh, which is around, you know, well-being, literacy and so on um, for younger children, speech and language development. Those are the kind of, you know, the basics that we all need to have in place so that we can access education, access our curriculum. And I think that has been very much our focus, really. I've tried to bring a new focus on teacher well-being since I've become minister, not least responding to the COVID pressures. Some of that is, you know, frankly, more challenging than, than, than other parts. So there's, a, there's an ongoing discussion, obviously, with uh, teaching unions and others around workload implications, around the balance in the classroom. And I'm keen to do whatever we can in that space to strike the right balance. I hope that the kind of things we've done in the context of COVID itself has indicated, you know, that you know, we've been trying to be as flexible as we can be around some of these things. Um, and I'm also expanding the particular support available for teacher well-being. So I've trebled the budget for that this year, and that will go up next year and the year after as well. So there's some interventions which we can make on that level, but I'm not, you know, I'm not pretending those are solving the whole range of challenges that you're putting to me here. What I would say in terms of what this means in the classroom mm. is that the flexibilities of the new curriculum do provide an opportunity to make up, as you're saying, some of that learning loss, to do that in a more kind of flexible, perhaps creative, less constrained context. Mm. And so I think the challenge for us all really is to try and align those, you know, what otherwise might be competing priorities really. Your uh, professional learning offer that was announced earlier this year did get quite a quite a reaction in some of the uh, the commentary out of education. I mean, it was it was interesting. You also kind of uh, pointed out that perhaps there could be a bit more of a sharing uh, culture, you know, uh, between people who've got the knowledge. Yeah, I know that even pre-COVID, obviously, we've talked about the challenges of COVID, but even pre-COVID, we were generating research and we were having anecdotal conversations that perhaps in the early stages of putting the curriculum together, obviously before your time, there was a bit of a stickiness there. And it, it stemmed partly from schools feeling that they they were in competition with other schools, partly from people worried that they were going to share something that was wrong and they were going to sure. get their colleagues in trouble. And um, all sorts of reasons, all sorts of, you know, good and bad reasons. But it seemed that there just wasn't that transfer of good information across the education system. And you've you've signalled really that, that you want to do something about that uh, in, in terms of the professional learning offer and, you know, saying that the regional consortia need to share as widely as possible do you think we're getting there? How how do you see this knowledge transfer perhaps working and improving as we move forward? So I think there's a range of things in this space. So firstly, um, I made the point at the start about the importance of cluster working, and I think that's part of the solution to the to the question that you're raising here. And that's a relationship both of mutual support but also of constructive challenge, isn't it? And I think that's really important and we should welcome that. And, you know, we're all in that kind of mutually supportive way. So I think on a kind of school-by-school school level, that's part of the solution. On an individual practitioner level, I'm really keen that we, you know, embed this culture of sharing. And it isn't, you know, it isn't sharing the kind of shortcuts and the hacks. It's sharing the approaches sometimes, isn't it, you know? And I think if that's done in a way which is to say... You know, we have Hub, which is a fantastic resource. There's there's things I can draw on from there and there's things I can share on there. Then that creates a kind of culture of exchange, I think. And, you know, everyone brings to that their own perspective and their own uh, circumstances and will adapt and develop that for their own practice. But I really want to try and encourage us to, to, to see it in that kind of, yeah, 
it's not a marketplace, but it's a place of exchange, isn't it? So you're sharing um, these um, approaches between practitioners. I think the role of the national network is important in this as well, to, think, to make sure we encourage everyone to engage in that. Uh, we've had several sessions uh, so far, and I want that to be, you know, I want to be able to demonstrate to practitioners the value of participating in that because it's a significant call on the time of those people who want to engage in it. And I want us to be able to demonstrate that's having an impact across the system. Certainly, it's helping us understand, you know, how to, uh, you know, help design and implement parts of the curriculum. So that's very um, helpful as well. On the professional learning aspect of it, which is where this sort of started, really. You know, I, I was just very conscious. We spend very, very significant sums of money on professional learning, which is absolutely the right thing. Uh, and I would just wanted to make absolutely sure that we were getting all the possible, you know, value of that in terms of it reaching practitioners in the classroom. Because obviously, if it's not, then it's not, you know, it's not being effective. Uh, and it's a real shame if it's, you know, it's good stuff that, that's there and it should be, you know, it should be deployed as widely as possible as practitioners want so you know that is about providing making sure that what we have is navigable accessible signposted organized in a way which makes it easy for me as a hard-pressed uh, teacher with loads of other things i've got to try and get done in my week to find and to digest and be able to reflect on um, but also to make sure that there's a sort of understanding of you know a core set of things i should be locating and then a range of things beyond that which are more driven by my particular preferences and my particular circumstances. So, you know, by the time we get to September, we'll have the um, entitlement. And I'm really keen to make sure that teaching assistants, teachers see this as an entitlement that they can turn to. And that, you know, wherever you are in Wales, you have access to the best uh, professional learning and resources from all parts of Wales, which I think is an important part of the message of having a curriculum for Wales. Really reassuring to hear you speaking in those terms and certainly what we hear from our own sort of partnership school practitioners and student teachers who are very busy and need that sort of easily accessible, yeah. digestible and close to practice professional sure. learning. Yeah. Um, something that we are hearing quite a lot just from practitioners that we work closely with but also theorists um, in, in the field we we interviewed Lucy Crehan recently who as you'll know is working on a, a pan Wales project um, looking at what she calls the middle tier um, planning that doesn't appear in our curriculum for Wales because it is a subsidiarity model as, as I know you know some of her big concerns around curriculum for Wales um, regard equity, coherence and quality across settings and schools. You talked about working in clusters um, as potentially an answer to this, but this is something that our student teachers are starting to um, get a little bit nervous about as well. And one of our music student teachers has actually uh, posed a question. As a music teacher working with the new curriculum, should I be expected to teach drama art, dance and any subject that falls under the area of learning and experience. Schools seem to be taking very different directions on this and many teachers I've spoken to uh, seem very worried about it. So obviously student teachers are in a fortuitous position because they're going to do two contrasting school placements so that they're seeing sort of different approaches. Yeah. Do you share these concerns about equity and coherence and, and what are your thoughts around how we, how we navigate that challenge? Well, um, it's a concern to be alive to, but I don't have a concern that we will not deliver it um, as a system. 
the curriculum has a number of different levels, isn't it? And, you know, I started by talking about the centrality of uh, literacy and numeracy and digital as part of that. And that's the kind of the core of all of the curriculum, really. And there's a high, you know, as you said, you use the word subsidiarity, there's a high level of decentralisation in how curriculum, curriculum is designed at a school level, reflecting local communities, local experiences and so on. And I touched a little bit on it in my earlier answer about the importance of that net network in providing a kind of moderating role as well as a sort of shared design role as well. And, and all of that creates, I think, the sort of shared curriculum, which we're trying to you know, balance alongside curriculum design at a very local level. Um, so, you know, the entire curriculum has been developed to support approaches that draw together different disciplines in curriculum design and to create a more kind of coherent learning experience, really, to enable individual um, practitioner, individual students who your questioner will be teaching to, to make the connections between different parts of the curriculum and of their education journey. Um, and what will happen as learners progress is they'll have greater opportunities, if you like, to engage with um, different disciplines and to specialise within them, obviously particularly as they get to the later stages in progression. So, you know, there's an evolution process at work here really and there's an increasing opportunity but also an increasing need for learners to be able to specialize on that journey so to the point that your question was asking around you know effectively are they losing their focus if you are they required to lose their focus the answer to that is no because discipline specialist teaching is an inherent part of enabling learners to evolve their learning to reflect their own you know disciplines their own desire for speciality so i think that's you know that that's part of the balance that needs to be struck really it's uh and the analogy we often use when we're talking about the transition from the old curriculum to the new curriculum is that that schools are working in a, a relatively small space sure. before and now they're working in a much bigger space yeah. because you've given them this agency to to have subsidiarity and i suppose then it kind of follows that within that much bigger space you've got some wonderful high quality ways of doing things and that maybe within that very big space there are also some less high quality ways of doing things yeah. and what you're saying there about the importance of discipline specific teaching I mean we we noticed as we watched the curriculum transition from draft to final sure. was the removal of a suggestion that teachers could teach multi, you know, multiple subjects and a reinforcement of the idea of, of the importance of discipline as underpinning a lot yes. of what we do in curriculum I suppose the question is do schools know this? Because what we're hearing is that potentially quite a lot of them don't. And, you know, people are coming to us and saying, oh, you know, my management want me to teach three different subjects. And then we point them in the direction of some literature or some research we've done and they go and have a conversation and, and realise it's perhaps not the best idea. But is there a kind of joined up way of making sure that schools by September or potentially the following September are going to be in the right bits of that very, very big space at the moment. Well, yeah, I mean, I hope that the work that we've been doing in particular, you know, in this last academic year, um, about providing um, access to that wider range of best practice, resources, guidance, is helping schools on that journey. But, you know, just as curriculum design is a process of iteration, so is governing. So I'm very happy to respond to you know, individual suggestions from schools or practitioners about how we can continue to improve and refine. Now, it's really important, I think, to embed that culture of continuous learning for all of us, actually, you know, and continuous design and development. So, you know, very happy to think about what more we can do in that space, of course. 
Taking a, a, a step back now and, and looking at the profession, and we know that um, there's a lot of work to be done to make sure that our profession is diverse. And we know we've got specific work to do in making sure that we've got people from a variety of ethnic backgrounds, people from the LGBTQ plus community. And of course, something that I'm sure you'll be very passionate about is more Welsh medium educators. What are the plans at sort of top level to to try and make sure that that this is happening. We know what we're doing as IT providers um, and we know that there's a lot of amazing research that's going on such as the Charlotte Williams report and this really starting to help us find our way but I'd love to know your thoughts on, on how we how we gain momentum in that area. Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing to acknowledge is we've got a long way to go. Um, I think that's stating the obvious, isn't it? But I think it's important to acknowledge that. Um, and the work that... Uh, uh, Charlotte Williams has done. We've also had Nestin uh, report on this very recently, and we're developing a set of interventions as a government to try and respond to some of the work that we need to do to achieve a more diverse workforce. So our teaching workforce is less diverse than the learners that are in our classrooms, and so I think that's you know not you know that clearly is not the right thing. So so there are a range of things in terms of making sure we have a we attract more Black, Asian, and minority ethnic candidates. Uh, into ITE. That some of that will be around financial incentives for the first time. But then I think it's also important to make sure that those practitioners already in schools f- feel valued and feel that they have a career path which um, they want to pursue. And I think there's a particular challenge in terms of black, Asian and minority ethnic practitioners reflecting that at a school leadership level. You know, we are absolutely not where we need to be at all um, in relation to diversity amongst uh, SLT members. Um, and I think, you know, obviously, understandably, if you don't see yourself reflected back at you in senior leadership, then, you know, you're going to raise questions in your own mind completely uh, understandably. So there's a particular challenge um, for us to make sure we address there. Some of that is around working with govern- governing bodies. Some of it is around working um, with practitioners throughout the system to ensure that we understand you know that we can encourage encourage appointments at a senior leadership level in schools as well, and I think that's a you know it's a very very important uh, priority for us as a government. You made the other point about Welsh medium uh, teaching as well. We're about to publish a plan uh, which is about a, it's a ten year plan, but I'm anxious that that shouldn't be seen as regarding this as being a ten year problem because it's you know there, there needs to be immediate action as well, um, which is around how we make sure that uh, we encourage more. Well, speakers into teaching, and also to be, you know to encourage teachers to make the choice to teach through the medium of Welsh where they are able to, um, and that I think requires a lot of creativity and a lot of fresh thinking. And I hope that people will see that in the plan when it's published. We've designed it and developed it with with uh, partners throughout the system. Um, some of that again is around financial incentives. Some of it is around routes to qualification some of it is around providing school leaders with you know support on how to take this forward strategically at their school level with you know with their local education authority partners it is one of the um you know if i can be very candid about it it's one of the things that does you know keep me up at night because you know our ambitions in this area are so significant and i'm I'm delighted about that, obviously, um, as both Welsh language minister and education minister. But, you know, in order to deliver them, in order to make them a reality on the ground, clearly we need to make sure that we are recruiting um, and retaining, actually, Welsh medium practitioners. So, um, And I think also, if I may say, 
um, this extends beyond teachers and I think there's an issue around making sure that we're recruiting teaching assistants who are able to work through the medium of Welsh as well. It's part of a recruitment ecology, really, isn't it? It's, you've got to see the landscape as a whole, really, because, you know, challenges in one in recruitment in one part of the uh, of the workforce obviously affect other parts of the workforce um, as well. So, and that's also addressed in the plan, which we'll be publishing in the next few weeks, actually. And moving on to some questions about, I suppose, the sustainability of the profession. I mean, taking on board that point you made about uh, teaching assistants, taking on board the, the fact that there is clearly great appreciation for the amazing work um, that teachers do. We did get a question from a student teacher mm-hmm. about how maybe the cost of living crisis at the moment might yeah. be eroding the earning power of teachers. Also, a very good question from them about teaching assistants yeah. and whether they can be upgraded a bit in terms of pay scale and, and professional progression, because I'm sure all of us who've worked in the classroom have worked with teaching assistants yeah. who are worth their weight in gold, but would have probably earned more money doing something that was, was probably less stressful than being a teaching assistant. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because obviously nobody's in this for the money, but it, it, there is a question, isn't there, about the sustainability of the profession? Yeah, and you need to make sure people are properly remunerated for the work that they do, obviously. So um, in, in terms of teachers' pay specifically, we've had that devolve to Wales for the last three years. Last year, obviously, we agreed a 1.75 pay increase at a point when there was no increase happening over the border. So that fun, you know the, the way that the funding to the Welsh government operates is unfortunately triggered by sums of money spent in England. So, but you know, the, the point I'm making is we made different choices despite the fact that that you know budget wasn't being made available. And I'm expecting um, in the next few weeks in May to get the uh, the report from the IWR uh, PRB about September's um, uh, pay. And more broadly, by the way, there's. Um, a review underway of the structure of teachers' paying conditions uh, in Wales, which I'm expecting to report in uh, March of next year. That was a proposal which the board made, which I accepted as a recommendation. So um, I think that would be very helpful for us. Um, on the particular question of teaching assistance terms and conditions, I, I just want to echo the point you're making about how absolutely central teaching assistants are to our ability to make sure all our learners get the experience they need in the classroom. And I certainly value the work that teaching assistants do very, very greatly. Um, and as you were saying, teachers, you know, would not often not be able to do their work without the incredible role that teaching assistants um, play. So there's there's a challenge in this space, but there's also some progress in this space. So the challenge in this space is that the em- employment of teaching assistants isn't something which the Welsh Government has t- you know, direct the same kind of influence and control over as we do in relation to um, uh, to teachers because they're determined by local authority employment terms, generally speaking. However, you know, one of the you know persistent challenges has been the lack of standardisation of job roles, the the range in different ways of deployment that teaching assistants experience in different schools and the very significant differences in many cases of the approaches between different local authorities in Wales. So um, what I've commissioned is a piece of work that will help us move all of those things forward, which is to try and get a better level of standardisation of job roles, job um, specifications, to give clearer guidance to heads around how best to deploy the skills of teaching assistants in the classroom. I think there's a particularly interesting uh, role in that space around how we make sure that socioeconomic disadvantage in our schools can be addressed through, you know, de- deploying staff 
um, at different grades in different ways. And I hope that provides then the basis for us to have a, you know, you know, to move forward the question of how we pay teaching assistants better and more consistently across Wales as well. As well as the kind of, I mentioned the um, professional learning entitlement earlier, that's a learning entitlement for teaching assistants as well as teachers, of course. In terms of the voice, if you like, of teaching assistants in the system, uh, one of the challenges or shortcomings, I suppose, we've identified is that when you look at governing bodies, there hasn't historically been you know, a vo- particular voice for teaching assistants when decisions are being taken around you know, managing the school more broadly. So we will be bringing forward proposals for there to be a, um, a governor dedicated to the interests of teaching assistants who, you know, that they'll need particular guidance and training, of course. Uh, but I hope that will help, you know, mainstream BABs in the life of the school, some of the perspectives specifically of teaching assistants. And looking a little bit more widely than money, uh, we were we were sharing in one of our previous episodes, got one of these amusing but awful motivational graphics you get on Twitter where somebody <laughs> put one of these things that says, you know, a teacher is like a candle. They, they uh, you know, they consume themselves to light the way for others. And we, you know, after being sick into a bucket under our desk, we kind of said, <laughs> we, we looked at the reply underneath that said, don't set yourself on fire to keep somebody else warm. And while we would never want to suggest that, you know, that, that teachers are not heroes who go way above and beyond because it's something that they love doing there's a question around the sustainability of that kind of attitude so thinking back to what you mentioned about well-being earlier on you know how do we stop teachers setting themselves on fire to keep other people warm I, I, that's a horrible image isn't it actually <laughs> that, that, um, that you just used there um so i think you know um it's really important, isn't it, that we make sure that professionals doing an incredibly valuable job uh, are acknowledged for doing an incredibly valuable job, but are also supported in practical terms. Um, so some of the work around the well, you know, the the, um, uh, the well-being in schools uh, service that we're expanding will provide individual advice, effectively, you know, opportunities for teachers to have individualised support, but also we'll work with. Uh, school leaders around the approaches taking schools more broadly to um, well-being. Actually, you know, our whole school approach, our whole system approach to mental health and well-being, which is, you know, often and perhaps for obvious reasons, characterised as being around learners, actually is also around practitioners. So, you know, making sure that they have the support they need is part of that as well. But I also, just to go back to the point that Emma was making earlier, um, about the, you know, the number of challenges that teachers may have and you know, when there's a lot of reform happening in the system, which obviously there is at the moment, you know, it's part of our task uh, as a government to try and make sure uh, that the you know, priorities are all facing in the same direction, if you like, so that people aren't being pulled in opposite directions. Um, so I hope we're doing that. Certainly the, the journey to September 22 document was intended to try and align some of the asks that we have of the profession. But as I say, I'm very interested to hear if, if people feel we should be doing more in that space, obviously. And, and just very briefly on that point, people who we have, you know, immense care for actually because we work in ITE are our NQTs, our yes. newly qualified teachers out there, who many of which trained in a pandemic sure. um, and did not get, um, and we know um, from the research that we've done and from working with them directly, did not get the classroom time um, that was needed. And so becoming a curriculum designer is probably not their first priority. Getting their bread and butter classroom pedagogy right is probably something yeah. that I would anticipate they're, they're really concerned about. So yes. 
for them, what would you say to NQTs out there who might be quite worried or those who are about to become NQTs, you know, what are, what's going to be put in place for them to make sure they're supported? Yeah, well, we've been looking at our, at our early years package generally, so about the support that's available. So I hope there'll be some good things we can say in that space to NQTs in particular. Obviously, we've been able to extend now for the third term uh, the paid placements in schools for NQTs. I know, you know, that's been a significant uh, well, it's actually been, I think, beneficial to, to to most, you know, to schools, but also to practitioners. Obviously, just very, very mindful of the missed opportunities. Clearly, that students have had to be able to uh, to get classroom exposure in the last couple of years. So, hopefully, that's made some contribution to that. But when I've had the opportunity of speaking to cohorts of ITE students and. Uh, I've been able to do that over the lo- last few months, and it's been fantastic from my point of view because you, you're, you know the kind of questions that you're asking now that have come from uh, students and early years practitioners you always um, go to the heart of it because they're very you know, focused on the practical experience as you would anticipate, um, and actually often raise questions which you know perhaps give us pause for thought, which is how this should work, obviously. Uh, so I think I hope that the, the new approach to some of the early years support will be helpful. And I think as well, just a commitment from us to make it clear that we are absolutely committed to uh, teacher well-being uh, as a top priority. You know, it's important in terms of me- me- making sure that our learners get the best experience of being in school. But it's also important in its own terms, isn't it, to make sure that you've got staff who are motivated and feel supported. No one is going to pretend that the pressures which teaching staff face are capable of being resolved in one fell swoop. So, you know, I'm not suggesting that, but it's incumbent us to look at the balance, isn't it, as we are, and to try and make sure that we put support in place where it's possible. Okay, well, that's uh, probably enough for the big questions. Now we're going to move on to our feared short slots and and ask the Minister for Education whether he's done his homework. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, (laughs) since you're putting it in those terms, uh, chances is what we always ask. Um, So we have something interesting and something to try. And I suppose since you're a government minister, we'll let you do them either way round. So something interesting. I, I had a week off over the recess and spent most of that week uh, reading actually which was um, a joy and in, in so in my role there's a lot of reading of material which is you know policy focused or which is around preparing you for making uh, decisions hopefully generally usually the right decisions but you know that's the purpose of the system and there's you know often the reading for pleasure is crowded out, really. Um, and I'm sure that's true for most teachers in many ways as well. You mean uh, policy documents aren't really juicy? Uh, <laughs> I, should, <laughs> I think it depends on the policies. The uh, but um, so uh, just a reflection, which is a very basic reflection about how important it is to make that time to, you know, to, to, to try and, in my case, reading for pleasure as opposed to reading solely, as it were, for work. Uh, not to suggest that work isn't always pleasurable, of course. Um, but specifically, I was going to say, in the context of the new curriculum, I read a lot of short stories, including some short stories by fantastic writer called uh, Caris Davis, who's Welsh but lives in England now, and actually felt to me like the short story as a medium exemplifies quite a lot of what the new curriculum which is about, really, which is taking one, often one moment, one experience, one question but it elucidates and illuminates a lot of other things. Um, and I just thought this, you know, this, this, it's an interesting way of looking at it, really. Um, uh, so I'm not sure how insightful that is, but it, I think it, it, it at least enabled me to uh, unwind a bit, read some good literature, but also not forget entirely for that few days about, about the key priority we have in the weeks ahead. 
And uh, finally, have you got something for our listeners to try? Yes, I'm not sure about uh, about how well equipped I am about this, but one of the things I've been trying actually in the last few months, and it's pretty basic, but we you know we all do roles where as soon as you get into your place of work, the the kind of demands on your and your attention, if you like, are immediate and kind of relentless until you get home at night. And so I think we all do, uh, we all face that challenge. And I've sort of been trying to very consciously spend about 10 minutes when I get to work, rather than doing it at home, uh, at the start of each day, just reflecting on some of that in a very kind of sort of purposeful way, really. And I always find it hard to find those 10 minutes. But and it, but it's I found it very you know, in a very kind of noisy environment in many different ways. I think just finding those 10 minutes, I have found it helpful at the start of a day, um, just to reflect on what might be about to take throw me off course during the course of that day has kind of helped a little bit. This podcast wasn't one of those things I was worried about <laughs> throwing me off course. <laughs> I should, I should say. Not even that <laughs> Glad to hear it and get a big green tick for having done your homework. Jeremy Miles, thank you for being so generous uh, with your time. I'm sure we'll be bugging you again for another uh, another interview somewhere down the line as we get a bit further in uh, to curriculum reform. Diochen van thank you very much. And we'll be back in your ears in two weeks' time. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Jeremy Miles, who's the Minister for Education and the Welsh Language in the Welsh Government. And thanks to him for taking part. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We're on Twitter at Talk Teaching Pod if you want to come and say hello. We'll be back in your ears in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching.